Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, coming to you from our studio in Johannesburg. I'm Michael Apple. It's Tuesday, the 1st of February. With me are my colleagues, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat. They've got the latest new news headlines and a look at what's going on in the markets. On today's program, our partner, the Financial Times, looks at the West preparing more extreme sanctions for Russia as a deterrent, hopefully, to a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Idea is to cut Russia off and out of the international financial system and make it so miserable for for Vladimir Putin to run his country that he decides against any expansion. Then more on what's being called a, quote, landmark type of rotten for U.S. stocks, with the S&P 500 down over 5% compared to last month, while the NASDAQ dropped 9%. Justin, I want to bring you in here. This is said to be the worst trading month the U.S. has had, at least since the financial crisis. What's causing this? Mike, a host of fears driving this at the moment, namely inflation and what is going to happen with the interest rate cycle. We've seen years of quantitative easing, money coming in from the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank in the States. That is now coming to an end. It's the end of the era of free money, and that is what's spooking the markets. Inflation is going up. It's broad-based. The Federal Reserve thought it would be transitory, i.e. temporary in nature, It's been sticky, which is the problem. There's going to be a host of interest rate hikes this year. Interest rate hikes means that stocks lose their value, especially relative to other assets. It's going to be a very interesting year in the markets, Mike. And the JSC also needs to watch out because when the U.S. catches a cold, the rest of the world, sorry, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world generally catches a cold. I was about to say, you love that saying, and then you go and mess it up. Uh, closer to home, the South African Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee, are we factoring in a couple of hundred basis points uh, increase in the interest rate? There's a 200 basis point increase over the next two years that's been priced into the market. This is also to curb inflation. Our inflation numbers have come out hotter than expected. But if you're looking for real yield, South Africa is the place to be. You look at our 10-year government bond nearly at a nominal rate of 10%, our inflation at 6%. If you go to the US, those real yields are in deep negative territory. So for investors, even global investors looking for yield, South Africa is an attractive place to be. John Bickard, you spoke to him today. What's his investment philosophy? Uh, He's done double-digit growth. He's done really well in the past, hasn't he? The first time I've chatted to John, he's run the 91 value fund for over 20 years and generated a return of more than 17% per annum. Mike, to put that in layman's terms, that's incredible. He is one of the doisions of fund managers in this country. I was blown away by my interview I had with him. I know it's a short snippet on the BPH. I would really encourage uh, listeners to go listen to the full interview. His investment philosophy is very simple. He takes it back to basics And he likes to swim against the tide, as do many fund managers, but he likes that discomfort. When things get tough, that's when John Bickard gets going. 
and he says that we are in for a tough next five years, which makes me a little bit concerned. Then Biz News editor Alec Hogg, you're going to hear from him later in the show. He spoke to gardening guru Keith Kirsten about, quote, the mecca of horticulture. This is the uh, Chelsea Flower Show. I must admittedly, I'm way out of my depth here. Just uh, 1.5 million rand needed to get the Kirstenbosch National Botanical Garden in there, but they've had to withdraw. If you're interested in that, uh, look out for the interview. And then lastly, I had a chat with advocate Paul Hoffman from Accountability Now. I was expecting to get my hands on the second part of the Zonda report by now, but alas, it is up on no website as yet. Um, and we've uh, today instead looked at one of Zondo's recommendations that an independent anti-corruption agency be established. And this was in the first part of the report, kind of like the scorpions of old, but Hoffman wants such a body to be declared uh, a Chapter 9 institution. If you want to find out why, then listen to that interview. Also, he's picked up a not insignificant error that he says the Deputy Chief Justice made in Part 1 of that report. So more on that later in the show. Now, over to Nadia Swat with your news headlines. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Suspended ANC Secretary-General Ace Mangashule's bid to have his step-aside order retracted has failed with the Supreme Court of Appeals dismissing his application. The court said the appeal had no reasonable chance of success and dismissed the application with costs. Magashule was ordered to step aside after he was arrested and charged with corruption and fraud related to free state asbestos contracts. The ANC's standing rule is that officials accused of serious crimes must step aside from their roles within the party until their names have been cleared in court. Magashule did not voluntarily step aside and was subsequently suspended. The Federated Hospitality Association of Southern Africa has urged the government to remove the compulsory PCR test required for inbound international and returning SA travellers who are fully vaccinated. This comes as the government announced major adjustments to COVID-19 regulations on Monday night, including that those who tested positive with no symptoms did not have to isolate and that schools were now returning to daily attendance. These were welcomed by the association. The PCR test requirement, they said, is a deterrent to international travel and consequently the recovery of our tourism and hospita hospitality sector. And the Automobile Association has repeated its call for a full review of South Africa's petrol price following yet another significant hike for February. The Energy Department announced that petrol prices would be hiked by 53 cents a litre and diesel by 80 cents a litre on Wednesday. The AA said that South Africans are desperate for a reprieve and urged the government to initiate a review of all the components of the fuel price and conduct an audit of all existing elements to determine if they are still applicable and correct. There have been other calls for the government to institute a petrol price cap or cut taxes, which make up almost half of the price. Now it's back to Justin for the market report. JS Yulshare Index is firmer at 75,000. In the price action, three JSE top 40 companies released earnings guidance this morning, namely Aspen Pharmacare, Anglo, Gold Ashanti, and Vodacom. 
How did the market react? Well, they loved Aspen and Anglo Gold's update with both stocks well up this afternoon. They didn't like Vodacom so much with the stock low on the day, but more on this in a bit. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 23 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 54 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 15 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,805 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back approximately 29,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $89.60 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency is trading around the 590,000 rand level. In the financial news, and staying on the theme of the price action, shares of Aspen Pharmacare One track for their best day in almost a month on Tuesday, after South Africa's biggest pharmaceutical manufacturer said it expected headline profit to rise by more than a third in its 2022 half-year trading update released this morning. Its half-year results will be released on the 9th of March. And despite moving favorably in the price action, Anglo Gold Ashanti expects its full-year headline profit to drop by 42%, partly due to lower gold sales volumes and higher operating costs, as well as adverse currency fluctuations. The world's third largest gold producer, which no longer has operations in South Africa, said on Tuesday that headline earnings per share would likely decline by $1.37 to $1.53 in the year to end December from a year ago. The third Biz News Conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Biz News Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the biznews.com homepage. See you there. Today is Tuesday, February 1st, and this is your FT News Briefing. It was a dry January indeed. U.S. stocks had their worst start of the year since the depths of the financial crisis in 2009. Italian lawmakers decided they want more of the same with their leadership, and the country's bond markets were thrilled. Plus, Western countries are trying to deter Russia from attacking Ukraine with the toughest sanctions ever. It's really a package on a scale like we've never seen. Our Washington Bureau Chief James Politi will have more. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. January was a landmark kind of rotten for U.S. stocks. The S&P 500 is down over 5% compared to a month ago, and the Nasdaq is down 9%. This all adds up to the worst trading month since the financial crisis. The FT's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent, Nicholas McGaugh, says there are a few reasons for this no good, very bad month. The biggest one was the outlook for interest rates and inflation. We've been moving in this direction for a while, but the Federal Reserve really kind of stepped up its signaling this month that it would start lifting interest rates to fight price rises which is bad for stocks for various reasons. In simple terms, it's because it increases the income that an investor can get now from bonds, and that therefore reduces the relative value that they put on future income that stocks promise. It's a sort of bird in the hand versus two in the bush situation. Is part of this just that Wall Street is coming down from the crazy pandemic highs that we saw? Last year, when things were first reopening, everything looked amazing in comparison with lockdown. Now we're kind of, we've gone through a whole year since the reopening. And so that kind of easy comparison has gone. So now it's sort of more just, you know, if you're a company, 
the economy is still in decent shape. So you're probably, you know, your revenues are probably still going up by a kind of normal amount, but they're not up 300% year on year, whereas they were last year because 2020 was so terrible. So unpack this a little bit more for me, Nick. Who's really affected by this? So if there are any investors who had gone all in on that kind of the really speculative end of the tech boom, then they might be struggling right now. So people like Kathy Wood's ARK ETF has taken a really big hit because a lot of the companies in that are the sorts of not yet profitable, promising lots of long-term growth. If you actually ask Kathy Wood, which some people have, she's personally saying that she's feeling totally fine about this. She says that like, it just it's good news. It's a chance to buy the dip. But she would say that. So... <laughs> Fair point. Um, so given how bad January was, Nick, how are investors feeling about the next few months? It's important to give a bit of perspective. It was a bad month, but it looks worse because we've got used to things being really calm, unusually calm for the last 18 months or so. Even after this last month, the S&P is still up nearly 20% over the last 12 months. So as we're going into February, the underlying economic outlook is still not that bad. Most investors are still thinking that overall through the year, shares should start kind of trending upwards. But if they do that, and even without any escalation of the situation in Ukraine, we're not going to go back to what the last 18 months had been like. It's volatile months like this are more like the norm, not what we've just had. And so going forwards, it's going to be kind of watching out for maybe more of the same. Nicholas McGaugh is the FT's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent. Western powers are preparing what's being called the most aggressive sanctions against Vladimir Putin ever. The Russian president hasn't backed down from his threat to invade Ukraine, and these sanctions from the U.S. and European countries would hit everything from Russia's banks to high-ranking oligarchs. The FT's Washington bureau chief, James Politi, has more. This is about preventing uh, transactions with banks. It's about cutting Russia off uh, international payment systems. It's about depriving uh, Russia of key technologies as well when it comes to quantum computing and artificial intelligence and semiconductors. And so it's really a, a package on a scale like we, we've never seen. I mean, of course, in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea by Russia, the West moved to impose some sanctions on the Russian economy. But this is a, on, a whole other, on a whole other level, really. Now, James, we should mention that we don't have the full details of the package, but we do know that it would hit Russian oligarchs pretty hard. What's the thinking behind that? The logic of squeezing the oligarchs is to um, basically, you know, cut Russia off of the international financial system, make it so painful for Putin that, you know, he'll be deterred from taking any military action uh, in Ukraine, or if he does, you know, that he, he will face such a backlash uh, to the sanctions that he'll eventually sort of pull out to sort of diffuse the crisis. Now, James, these sanctions would only go into effect if Russia invades Ukraine, right? Yes, and there's a, a discussion about what the exact triggers would be um, and what happens if Russia decides to launch an attack which sort of falls short of an all-out 
a military boots on the ground invasion. Some, you, you know, officials have suggested that there could be um, a sort of sliding scale of sanctions, but I think the overarching objective is to punish Putin um, as much as possible, uh, both as a as a deterrent initially, and then eventually as a, as a measure to make any invasion as painful as possible. Is there any sense that these sanctions will dissuade Russia from invading Ukraine? Well, so far, I mean, it's very hard to tell. It doesn't look like it. The sort of military planning on the Russian side seems to be uh, moving, moving forward. There were more troops sent to Belarus, which also has a border with Ukraine. Um, so it looks like it hasn't deterred them so far, but maybe that's why um, the, the, the warnings of harsh sanctions keep coming um, is because they want to get the message through uh, to Putin. And I think the latest messages sort of coming from uh, U.S. administration officials and the U.K. as well about targeting oligarchs, um, I think are designed to show that the West is actually really serious about hurting uh, sort of Putin's friends. James Politi is the FT's Washington bureau chief. The best medicine for Italy's economy may be a dose of status quo. Italian lawmakers re-elected Sergio Mattarella as president over the weekend. It's not that lawmakers are head over heels for Mattarella. It's just that they really want the popular Mario Draghi to stay in his job as prime minister. Here's our Rome correspondent, Amy Kasman. Politicians were really afraid that if they elevated Draghi to the presidency, that then they'd have to agree on a new prime minister, and that would be really tricky. And they couldn't agree another consensus presidential candidate. So in the end, they forced the incumbent to stay on, even though he'd clearly expressed a strong desire to stand down and retire. The business community is happy, and so are markets. Italian government bonds rallied on the news that Draghi would stay at the helm of the coalition government. There's a lot of serious economic reforms that need to be pushed through the system over the next year. And they're really hoping that he will be able to get a lot of stuff done before the next election. Italy's economy has been chronically underperforming. And these reforms are intended to try to nudge Italy onto a higher growth trajectory for the long term. So they're really important for Italy's long-term future, but they're also very challenging. And there's a feeling that Mario Draghi is one of the few people that actually has a chance of getting some of this stuff done with this broad-based coalition, which was in danger of breaking over this presidential election. That's our Rome correspondent, Amy Kasman. And before we go, two big gaming deals dominated the news yesterday. Sony shelled out $3.6 billion for the video game developer behind the Halo franchise. And then the New York Times announced it would pay some M-O-N-E-Y, five letters, for the viral smash hit Wordle. A Brooklyn software engineer created Wordle as a gift to his girlfriend. The New York Times says he'll get somewhere in the low seven figures for the game. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. John Bickard, 91 Value Fund Manager. John, given this is our first conversation, 
Just talk us through a bit about your investment philosophy, experience as an asset manager. The 91 Value Fund has done more than 17% per annum since inception, which is quite incredible given that it's been going for more than 20 years now. Have you been running the fund from the get-go? I've been running it since 2000, so 21 years. I think it was running two years before then, so basically uh, 21 of the 23 years. And in terms of your investment philosophy, John? So we've had the same investment philosophy over the full 21 years, and it's to buy out-of-favor, deep-value stocks that the market is ignoring and taking a longer three, four-year view and not worry about what the next quarter's earnings are, but rather what the fundamental earnings power of the business is and what the correct rating of the business is and to look through uh, the short-term noise. And so it often means we are often a number of years early. So we don't, you know, often we're not just months early, we're years early. So we look um, and say, what do you think on a normal cycle this company can earn? what sort of business is, is in the long term, what sort of rating it should command through the cycle, and we get a fair value. And if the share is well away from that, we buy it irrespective of what it's what's happening now. Um, and obviously a very important thing is we spend a lot of time on the balance sheet to make sure that while we're waiting for things to change to unlock this value, that the company doesn't go bust because you know value investing is hard enough without having to do it before the companies goes goes bust. So that's what we've done. And it means generally that we're always swimming against the tide. Uh, we're buying when others are selling and selling when others are buying. And it means you've mentioned the long-term returns are the best in the industry, but on a three-year view, we often can come last because you know we're building the long-term and, and we want investors to give us the money on a three, five-year view and, and in exchange, for the short-term pain that we give you, we give you better long-term returns. And it's not because, um, the last thing I'd say, it's not because we work harder or because we're smarter than the rest of the market. It's because you need to be compensated for the discomfort in the short-term of being in out-of-favor stocks. So you should make extra returns, and you do. And I've never understood why investors uh, wouldn't uh, take that trade-off, you know, some discomfort in the short-term for more gains in the long-term. John, I'm sure you'd feel a lot younger if that 17.2% per annum was earned equally every year for the last 20 or so years. But as you've just mentioned, that's not how the equity markets work, especially when you're a value fund manager. Deep cycles, which has been tough specifically for value-orientated managers such as yourself over the past decade or so. One day you cock of the walk, the next a feather duster. From a behavioral finance perspective, how have you managed to stay rational? in your decision-making yes. when uh, others haven't. Just go back to what you're saying. That was an interesting point because that 17% over 21 years, um, the first 10 years has, was really good. I mean, it was unparalleled, and the next 10 years was okay. So, you know, you, you know, we basically, the 20-year is divided into the first 10 years when value outperformed growth, and the next 10 years when value underperformed growth. And substantially underperformed. I mean, I don't have to tell you how uh, growth stocks and tech stocks and quality stocks have dominated the last uh, 10 years. So, um, but it's a good, because it's a good, it's good to know that, you know, the 20 year history has had 10 years of tailwinds 
and 10 years of headwinds. So, and yet we're still well ahead of the benchmark and all competitors, which shows you do get compensated. And, and I would argue now we're going back into a period where we're going to see tailwinds. So, um, you know, the, the performance is very, been very evenly split between growth and value, and yet we've still managed to show that 4% alpha. So um, it shows that it works even in down cycles, but obviously we, we prefer up cycles. And, and your second question was, how do we get through that? Um, you know, it's a funny thing, but I often find it easier when it's not going our way because we just keep buying the really cheap shares. The thing, the times I get the most stressed is when things are going really well for our stocks because it means we have to sell and find another one. And it's much harder to decide exactly which level to sell. And then you, you have to go and do all the work to find another group of stocks or another stock to replace, you know, what's reached fair value. And it's kind of easier when you know what you want to buy and the share just keeps falling and you just keep buying it. Um, in a funny sort of perverse way, that way, that, that period is often easier for us. But the key thing is to do the work beforehand, to make sure you've got a, a, a concrete fair value. And then the most important thing is to stick to your belief, even if it takes three or four years for it to come through. John, let's focus on your fund for a second, the 91 value fund. I had a look at the fun fact sheet as of 31 December 2021, I was really interested in what I saw, so apologies for the barrage of questions to come. Firstly, the the JSE All Share returning 12.6% over the last 10 years. So much about the JSE performing so poorly, which is true relative to the US over that period. However, 12.6% annualized is hardly a poor showing when you think of the long-term returns from the S&P 500, which is high single digits over 100 year plus. Yeah, it's been the ten-year numbers all right, but the five-year number I think on the JC is a lot lower. I, I don't what I don't have that number to hand, but it's probably six percent or something. So we've been through a very tough time uh, or a tougher time in absolute terms, and obviously the JSC relative to the world, which has been led by the US, is miles behind over over five years. So you're right; the longer-term returns are still okay, and the shorter-term returns up to a year ago were terrible. And then after last year is okay. So, but obviously they're massive swings and roundabouts. So the last three or four years has only been really uh, commodities that have driven the JSC and the broader JSC commodities. And then up to a year ago, NASPAS and the broader financial and industrials or what we like to call in the industry, South Africa Incorporated has done nothing, has done terribly for a long time except maybe in the last year, there's some signs of, of a bit of a recovery happening there. From a sector perspective, 45% of the fund is invested in basic materials and industrials. Is that a combination of attractive valuations, inflation hedge, and sectors that generally will outperform in this current economic environment? So I think the big change we've made is the basic materials coming down a lot so we don't hold any general miners at all obviously that's been the area where there's been a lot of strength you know the market the jc has been driven by the anglos and bulletins and we don't see any value left there so we haven't been in that sector for years but we've been in the precious metal sector heavily in the last few years gold and platinum and frankly the performance we've achieved in the last three and five years which is good despite a weak uh, value cycle has all been because of platinum. 
So what we were talking about at the beginning, when we say we look ahead and try and normalize, we bought a lot of platinum four years, five years ago, when Impala Platinum was 20 Rand a share, because we saw what the normalized earnings of platinum were when everyone was saying the industry was dead. And literally these shares have all gone up 10 times from the bottom. And we've now, the last holding we had was Royal Buffer King, which we bought really on the potential of corporate action with Impala. That happened at the end of last year. So we first sold all the Impala and then we sold all the Royal Buffer King. So we have nothing left in platinum. So the only basic materials we have left is gold, where we've got 15% of the portfolio in gold and gold has been a terrible performer. We still think there's a gold bull market and gold shares are literally at 25 year lows relative to the market. So basic materials is really just gold. And outside of that, we have nothing. And with that money in that we've realized from selling out of platinum, we've bought basically, we've had a large mid cap position in South Africa for a long time. And we've sold a few of them, but generally mid caps have made quite a big comeback as the SA incorporated theme is, is, and we're still in that space. We've got about 35% of the portfolio in mid cap shares, which we still think are cheap. And then with the money that we've realized from platinum, We've invested it basically in three very defensive SA stocks, which have done incredibly badly. So going back to what I said at the beginning, we're looking for shares that are multi-lows relative to the market, that are ridiculed by the market, which no one is interested in. And there are three shares that we've taken all our platinum money and put that in. And you probably wouldn't have, they would have just been coming into the fact sheet in December. And that is Tiger Brands, which we have 8% in, and SPA, which we have 7% in, and Oceana Fishing, which we have 2% in. So 15 to 20% of the portfolio is now in that. And these shares, these three shares are trading at 15 to 25-year lows relative to the market. They're totally neglected by the market because everyone's buying um, commodities now. And yet they trade on, uh, those three counters trade on 5%, between five and seven and a half percent dividend yields and happen to be very defensive. You know, they are food and fishing and food retail. And we're not, you could say we're getting defensive, uh, maybe, but it's not why we bought them. They're all bought bottom up. You know, they happen to be really cheap, but it is interesting with the JSC at its all time high that the, not surprisingly, we're finding value in the defensive side of the market because everyone's buying the more cyclical side of the market. So that's the big change we have. So basically there's 15 in gold, there's 20% in these South African defensives, there's 35% in mid caps, and there's 30% offshore, which is held in the 91 global value fund. John, let's start with the fund's largest holding Anglo gold, multinational gold miner with no assets in South Africa, has a listing on the JSE. I stand to be corrected, but it's been a laggard relative to other gold miners in terms of returns and performance over the last few years. I speak to mining analyst Peter Major relatively regularly. He doesn't speak too highly of the management team. My question is why Anglo Gold over any of the other gold miners and why is it the fund's largest holding? So the reason why we have Anglo Gold is exactly why it's because Peter Major doesn't like it because everyone hates it. So there is a lot of valuation. So Anglo Gold has gone from, let's say, the preferred gold mine in South Africa because they're really only 
there's really only three potential gold investments and so that's gold fields and harmony and anglo gold and harmony is the highest cost producer with the most marginal assets and gold fields always had a problem with some of their mines in south africa and anglo gold was the preferred miner five years ago it's now almost as cheap as harmony so it's fallen on hard times and i think the market's concerns are i would say they they're not unfounded because the management have done an indifferent job you know the um there have been you know there was a whole year where there wasn't a ceo there's a new ceo now so management have done an indifferent job they've had a uh, bit of bad luck as well, but all the th everything's gone against Anglo Gold. So you're 100% right. It is the worst of the worst gold. Gold miners as a whole are cheap, and Anglo Gold is the cheapest gold mine. So that's exactly where we want to be. We don't have any worry with the balance sheets. Actually, in the best shape it's been in five or six years. They've had a number of problems. They've had the problem with the CEO, and they fixed that nine months ago. And there's a new CEO who's come in, and we're already seeing a little bit better uh, from him. They've had a big problem at Abuasi in Ghana, which is their new in inverted commas mine. It's a mine they've had for years, but they've opened an underground section to this mine. And a year ago, that uh, they ran into some big seismic problems there, but they seem to have overcome that and they're back on track to open Abuasi in the next 12 months. So that's gone. And the third problem they've had, they have a joint venture with Barrick um, in the DRC in Kibali and the money has been trapped in the DRC. So Kibali is a very successful, highly profitable mine, but the dollars haven't been coming out of the DRC the last couple of years. So um, you add all these things together, that means they've missed on production, um, management haven't had a clear strategy, you know, there's been as much as 500 million US dollars trapped in the DRC. Their new mine, which was their growth vector, which is Abuasi wasn't working, I mean, you can't make it up how bad it's been. So, you know, that's what we like. You know, we like a whole raft of problems because we're getting a, a cheap valuation, providing, of course, the problems go away. So, again, all I can tell you, you know, we've had four major problems, and two of them are half fixed. And in time, the odds are all four will be fixed, but the share price says nothing will be fixed. And the future is uncertain, so we'll... We'll go with, you know, things re revert to the mean. John, talking about a whole raft of problems, Brait, an ugly tale, largest asset being Virgin yeah. Active, hammered by the pandemic, debt, rights issue. Again, I get the feeling all this negative sentiment is the reason you're taking the other side of the trade. But to have nearly 6% yeah. of the fund in a speculative asset like Brait, you must be relatively optimistic about its prospects. Okay, so I don't see it as a speculative asset. Let's just, uh, I mean, it's an unbelievably cheap asset. I mean, you, correct. I mean, obviously, there's been a rights issue now. Um, there's been two rights issues. I think the first rights issue was at Rand 50 and the second rights issue, even though it was convertible, was now at Rand 50 But, you know, you just have to go back. And remember, Brait was like a 240 Rand share, and now it's a four or five rand share. So even if you take the 240 rand and you dilute it by the rights issues they had, you know, it was, this is entirely off the top of my head, it was 150 rand share, which is now five rand share. So it is immensely cheap. And ironically, if you go back and look at Braid today, 
it is in the best shape it's been in the last 10 years. I mean, when the share was 250 Rand, it was run indifferently by a private equity group who frankly um, took a huge punt in UK retail in the form of New Look, New Look where they lost all their money. And this, this it was trading at a premium to its, its valuation that its directors gave. Now today, we're down to just two assets, which is Premier Foods, which is one of South Africa's best food companies, and Virgin Active, which has obviously been killed by COVID, but right now is making a comeback. And if you take these two assets and you put Premier Foods on a Tiger Brands rating, and remember the Tiger Brands is our third largest holding in the fund. So we love Tiger Brands at this price, at like a 12 PE. So you put Premier Foods, which is at least as good a business as Tiger Brands on that valuation, and you put Virgin Active on the director's valuation, which, by the way, is probably half the valuation of four years ago, and only, you know, discounts that get somewhat back after COVID, you get to seven rand a share. And the shares rate trading at four and 50. So we're trading at a 40% discount to a very low net asset value. And lastly, the debt has been massively reduced by the two rights issues and the sale of Iceland Foods. And I think we're down to about two and a half billion net debt, which is the lowest it's been in 10 years. So the share is very low. It's at a 40% discount to a low NAV. You know, the truth is it's one of the best investments on the JSC now. And um, yeah, that's why we have it. Well, I made a gaff and a half this week by suggesting that Keith Kirsten, the icon in the Horticultural Society here in South Africa, had passed away. Keith, my humblest apologies. I was told this by a guy who I'm not going to name because he'll be more embarrassed than I was. Uh, and we were, we were sitting at a Keith Kirsten nursery, which is now called The Garden Shop. And he said, he said to me, no, no, Keith Kirsten's died. That's the reason why it's The Garden Shop. So... First of all, I'm delighted to be talking with you. And <laughs> you know, someone wrote to me and said, Keith, I'm glad that, you know, that, that the news was premature, <laughs> a, a lot premature. <laughs> and others wrote and said, well, you know, couldn't believe it. And, um, and uh, when, Nick, when Nick phoned me, he said, I'm so relieved to hear you. He said, because I thought you might have just died. <laughs> Yeah, okay. but you know, it's the third time that someone. You're not to be blamed. I'm, it's the third time that someone's thought I've died. Uh, when Ken Kirsten died, the great um, producer at the SABC, when he died, because I was also affiliated with SABC, you know, they, they all thought that I'd died. So it was, a, it was announced, it was in the paper that I'd died. In fact, I actually coined the name Keith Kirsten's Garden Shop at the time I was still there. And that was in case I passed on and I just didn't want to have the nursery under my name if it wasn't being well run. So it could just revert to garden shop, like body shop or something like that. But anyway, yes, be those in May. I'm alive and well. And what are you up to now? Well, for many years, even alongside the retail garden centers, we had always an intellectual property company where we managed uh, plants bred by South Africans uh, that we took abroad to Australia, to the UK, to Germany and, and the States. And we still do that for on behalf of we manage the rights of certain plants, um, certain agapanthus, certain pelagoniums, all for verbenas, all kinds of things that are bred here from some of them, in fact, from South African plants, others, some of them are exotics. And then we also represent breeders from around the world 
their plants in this country. So the majority of, of the very nice plants you see in garden centers with a label on, with a bit of information that tells people how to grow it and where to grow it, and particularly leaning more and more toward Mediterranean and, and indigenous plants. We bring those plants back to South Africa if they've been bred abroad, and we sell them through licensees. Throughout the country, we've got about 10 really good growers. We represent David Austin English Roses in the country, and Ludwig's Roses actually market them. And, and then on the other side, we have a very small team, but we do a lot of rather good quality landscape uh, design and construction in the Cape and some of it around Johannesburg. Keith, the reason why your name came up was the huh. RHS Chelsea Flower Show, which our colleague yeah. in London, Linda von Tilburg, has visited. Yeah. She said, since you were no longer involved, it seems like yeah. the South African connection has petered out a bit until this year when Chris Becker and Corin Roos, their farm, the Newt, uh-huh. is actually the, uh-huh. the overall sponsor. Just tell yes. us uh, the Chelsea Flower Show. I know it is old, but how important is it? Well, I think for South Africa, where, who has exhibited for well over 50 years, I think it's a very important shop window. It's really the mecca of horticulture and, and plants and flowers and, in, and the environment, for that matter. Uh, more and more work has been done on environmental education of gardeners and of and of people involved in the Raj estates, like the Newt, for example. And I think Kurs Becker and Corin Ruiz have done an outstanding job in taking a marvelous old estate that used to belong to the Hobhouse family, and they've bought it, and they've got a boutique uh, hotel there, and they've it's called Newt, based on a small, I think, slug or something that actually lives in, in the streams and in the wetlands there, and they've called it Newt after that. But I think great that they're sponsoring the overall Chelsea Flower Show. It would be great if they actually co-sponsored or got involved with keeping the Kirstenbosch Garden um, and the Kirstenbosch Botanical Society going and Sanby, the South African Botanical Institute, which is the, the, the 10 national botanical gardens around the country that are semi-government and, and come under the Department of Environmental Affairs. But the Botanical Society of South Africa, the Kirstenbosch branch in particular, was founded in 1913 at the outset of the naming and the, and the, and the ground being set aside by the City Fathers of Cape Town for a place where South African flowers could flourish. Mm-hmm. And that's been going for now, well, 120 something years. So, so the point is, though, that um, it is due to lockdown and due to COVID that the contract that um, Leon Kluger, the landscape designer who took over from um, the, my, my own designer as well as from David Davidson, who did pass away, and I think that's maybe where the confusion is coming in, but nevertheless, Leon Kluger had a three-year contract and he did do one or two years and it was great and got renewed. And due to COVID and I think the the pulling in of the strings of the budgets within the South African Botanical Institute, they've, they've decided not to go on with it. And that is a bit of a shame, but I do believe that private sector people, and I know that people have already mooted that they'll be prepared to assist in funding. And there's so many South African companies who have made it big abroad, like, in fact, Chris Becker, but others as well, uh, from Investic to whoever, that could actually come forward and maybe support it. In the, in, in the days gone by, people like Old Mutual, Nedbank, and many others supported uh, to help fund Kirsten Bosch get that garden into um, Chelsea, and it is without a doubt the mecca where every garden club, every horticulturist, it's their dream to go to the Chelsea Flower Show and to 
see the best of the best in landscape design, in environmental uh, education, and in, in plants and in plants and flowers. And the environment is coming more and more to the fore. So it really would be very nice. And I'm actually working with Leon now. I'm, in fact, having a drink with him later this afternoon because we, we're going to try and get maybe the Kirstenbosch branch of the Botanical Society to take this baton forward and, and appeal to the private sector through the media. So that's, that's what we'd like to do, I think. And Leon's prepared to go there and put on a wonderful South African display again. How much money would it take for someone to, to step into the breach? Well, in fact, um, it's less than a million rand, you know. I mean, it, you know, and, and at the utmost 1.5, it's not a lot of money to a corporate. It's mm. really not. We get volunteers. A lot of the Botanical Society members that are members in England come forth and, and wish to help. And they, they're already in England. So we don't have accommodation or travel expenses. And also, when I say we, I'm talking in our, on behalf of the people that are organized at the end of the day. Certainly the feedback I've had from the business community is that this was a, one of the top exhibits, the Kirstenbosch exhibit, at the whole Chelsea Flower Show, winning medals, etc. Yeah. In fact, uh, Raymond Hudson, who had a lot to do with the gardens with David Davidson for over 25 years, I mean – they they won out of I think the twenty six or seven years that they did the gardens um, were changed from a flower sort of arrangement thing that was given out to some florist in in England. They did the actual gardens beautifully, and they won I think twenty three golds, two silvers, and one silver gilt. They really did magnificent displays, and they were highly sought after by the judges of the Royal Horticultural Society. And in fact, one, either the Queen or one of the royal family made a particular point every year. They visited this other exhibit uh, religiously at the Chelsea Flusher. I'm hoping to be there this May because it's, it is going to happen. For the last three years, it hasn't happened, and hopefully with a small group. Uh, and I'm praying that we might just in record time be able to put something together by May. It is quite ironic, though, isn't it, that here you have one of South Africa's richest entrepreneurs who's sponsoring the whole thing, and mm-hmm. South Africa's Kirstenbosch, which is, as you said, has been represented there for many years and, and done so well, is not going to be represented. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the reasons are for that. I know that some of the top horticulturists within Kirstenbosch Botanical Gardens, and I'm not talking out of school, have gone into private practice and some of them with big entrepreneurs, one of them. In fact, with Chris Becker, but I think that it's also to do with f- freezing of posts, and it's and it's also maybe where the Sanbi people are thinking more inwardly towards environmental education and conservation within the country. And I understand that, but I think you know all these things take money, and some of the best supporters of South Africa have been the international guests that come out here on uh, you know for hospitality and they come to South Africa and see our beautiful gardens and they visit Kirstenbosch and in fact the Botanical Society of South Africa has many uh, European and British uh, members uh, of the society uh, and who come to visit the, the South African exhibit those who can't travel as much come to the suffering exhibit every year religiously and look and you know and ogle over our proteas and pincushions and and heathers and 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 ericas and whatever so i think we might just be able to get something together and hopefully there's somebody out there something that's also uh, surprised me is internationally gardening is just huge news when you look at britbox which is now here in south africa we see often their gardening related programs and you were iconic really on sabc in years gone by are you not at all doing any more of that kind of work? I've been on SABC for 30, 35 years almost every week or two. 
uh, th throughout those years. And it's a labor of love to stand in the sun and film and find gardens and and topics and all that. And I enjoyed it, but I also did it running a business and also traveling as I did. I mean, I'm an, uh, you know, I love travel and I maybe will slow down as the years go by, but I'm, so I, I, I think that and, and being, and writing a column when I was still 27 or 25, I was writing a column on gardening for the Pretoria News where I struck up my first garden center. So I kind of, Became involved in that, and I've been, and I'm still a patron of Food and Trees for Africa. I founded a bursary fund for students, which is something I'm really keen that the Botanical Society do to be able to put and fund students through horticulture and landscape design. And and so I've had a, at a young age some philanthropic sort of sort of things I wanted to do, and that all takes time and effort. And so that's how I met Nelson Mandela. I was planting trees in Alexander before he became president. Yeah, I think it was just that I was I had my gob on TV and that sort of everyone thinks you first of all they think you're a millionaire when you've been on TV and <laughs> and secondly that I think I did a lot for the media I mean I wrote articles for the Farmers Weekly in those days I did a four page spread with the Garden and Home magazine and then the Gardener magazine and then you know several other magazines and I was very committed to the growth of the South African Nursery Association, so that sort of thing. Um, appointed the first black horticulturist at the Johannesburg Zoo, and you know I've just appointed a great horticulturist to Boschendal, right? Just just recently, and so you know these are the sort of things I like doing, and it's it's kind of helping to make South Africa still exist in a hundred years' time and and longer. So I'm very positive about all that sort of thing. Welcome to this conversation with Advocate Paul Hoffman, Director of Accountability Now. Advocate, we're speaking on the eve of the release of Part 2 of the Zondo Commission's findings. But before we get into that, you've picked up a little, let's call it a big deficiency and a big boo-boo in Part 1 regarding the Glenister judgment that uh, the Deputy Chief Justice refers to in his findings. You were lead counsel on the Glenister case many moons ago. What did you find in Zondo's Part 1 report that you say is just downright wrong? Well, I, th I think it, it, it's an important error. I've drawn it to the attention of the evidence leaders, and I'm sure that the um, acting Chief Justice will, in fact, correct it. So the part of the second tranche of his report that I'm looking forward to most is the, uh, the correction of the error. The error is an important one of principle. The, he's got the facts wrong in relation to what happened in the uh, Glenister judgment of March 2011. Back then, Mr. Glenister was impugning the constitutionality, in, among other things, of the Hawks as an anti-corruption entity for South Africa. And uh, to the surprise of many observers, and by the narrowest possible majority, Mosaneki and Cameron, uh, leading judges of that era, were able to persuade a majority of the Constitutional Court that the initial incarnation of the Hawks was unconstitutional because it could not operate as an effective and efficient, adequately independent anti-corruption entity while it uh, was constrained by the operational and structural 
confines of the uh, legislation that was before the court and was being impugned by Mr. Glenister. Now, in the Zondo Commission report, tranche one, this very important judgment is uh, described as a minority judgment. Now, this is not a question of tomato or tomato. A, a minority judgment is an interesting reflection of an opinion of judges who are unable to persuade their colleagues that they are right. A majority judgment, on the other hand, is a binding decision of the court which has to be implemented by those who are bound by it. And, of course, in the Glenister litigation, the president, uh, the state, the um, ministers of justice the uh, and, and police and the national prosecuting authority were all parties to the case. So what ought to have happened after the decision of Cameron and Mosoneki in Glenister 2 was that the, uh, the uh, parliament was sent back to the drawing board by them and they ordered parliament to pass remedial legislation to create an effective and efficient, adequately independent corruption buster. And what we got 18 months later was the uh, next incarnation of the Hawks, which was really a minimalistic attempt to keep the Hawks and comply with the judgment. And it's important to understand that the decision of the Deputy Chief Justice Mosineki and Justice Cameron is a binding decision that was confirmed in the subsequent litigation, and it is one that requires that the anti-corruption machinery of state should be what we have called STIRS compliant. That acronym, <laughs> lots of words in judgments about it, but it's a five-letter acronym. STIRS stands for Specialized, Trained, independent, resourced in guaranteed fashion, and secure in tenure of office. Whatever this new anti-corruption agency uh, is going to look like, uh, it'll take several years to, to possibly get it um, into some workable form, if at all. You have said that it needs to be designated a Chapter 9 institution. Why was that? It doesn't necessarily take several years. It's a question of political will. Our parliament has been able to change the constitution very quickly when, for example, the, the question of floor crossing came up. They, 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 with, with cooperation across party lines, it is possible to process uh, legislation uh, with, within less than a year. Within a matter of months, it can be done. But the, the missing ingredient at the moment, which is why you're probably right to say it's going to take years, is that there is a lack of political will to do what is required. So had the Scorpions been a Chapter 9 institution, they would still be with us today. Why? Because a Chapter 9 institution cannot be closed down unless two-thirds of Parliament votes in favour of closing it down. Whereas the Scorpions, as a mere creature of an ordinary statute, were closed down by a simple majority in Parliament and in the face of strong opposition 
from all of the opposition parties and from civil society as well. There was just a a determination on the part of the ANC, which had made the the resolution at Polokwane in 2007, that the uh, Scorpion should not be allowed to continue. And Gwedi Montashi was even so honest back then to say, it's because they're going after too many <laughs> ANC politicians, which was true. From the testimony of, of so many witnesses uh, who came before the state capture inquiry, it was pretty clear that uh, state-owned entities, it was pretty open season on them to be able to fleece the taxpayer. It was a an almost never-ending money pit where no matter how big the gaping hole, how much you stole, there was always a government bailout around the corner. What do you think we're likely to get out of this part two of this report? We know that um, selected SOEs were uh, focused on in the first tranche. I think we're going to have more like that dealing with, 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 with other entities that were looted and were turned. They were really repurposed for the, for the expression of the greed of those involved in the state capture. And remember, in every deal, there would be a civil servant or the state-owned entity employee and a, a member of the private sector supplying the goods and services at the wrong price or in a way that allowed the uh, skimming off of about one and a half trillion rand in, in a space of four or five years. That's the, the numbers that they are talking about. I think Zondo is going to come up with a number on that too, and that will probably be in the final. So I'm not sure whether the Guptas and President Zuma will be dealt with in, in tranche two or whether they are saving that for the last tranche of the report. Advocate, am I understanding you correctly that you could have this completely independent anti-corruption agency located within as a Chapter 9 institution? Would you call for the disbanding of the Hawks or would you leave them in place? Could those two act in parallel? The, the Hawks have a um, legislated mandate to deal with priority crime, and that involves all manner of activities that are not corruption. Look at things like poaching, illicit diamond buying, uh, human trafficking. All of those are the work of the Hawks and can remain the work of the Hawks. Serious corruption is in a different category because the people involved in serious corruption, have political clout that makes it very difficult for a unit with the lack of sapiential authority that the Hawks suffer from uh, to, to enable the Hawks to be successful. They've never caught a big fish in their entire existence, and they're never going to because they are not um, uh, operationally and structurally capacitated to go fishing in, in those deep waters. Advocate Paul Hoffman, thanks for your time. The third business conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the business.com homepage. See you there.
Well, that's all we've got for you this evening. Thank you for joining the Biz News team for this Power Hour. We'll be back again on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.